continuing our series in the letter of James, and we've reached, after many months of study interrupted by various events, James chapter 5. And we're going to read James 5, 1 through 6, which is our passage for today. And I want to steal a verse from next week. So let's hear God's word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I can never read these words without remembering standing at a checkout desk in a supermarket in the United States and a title on one of those sensationalist papers they tend to sell at checkout desks caught my attention. And the headline read like this, Preacher Explodes Before Startled Congregation. Preacher explodes before startled congregation. And this, I think, is the effect that these verses in James have on us. Nothing in this letter has at all prepared us for this diatribe. And my suspicion is if James were our new minister and he appeared on the 20th of September uh, 2020 and this was the substance of his sermon, we would be saying to him at the door, can you not have mercy on us? Don't you know we've gone through these months, some of us of isolation, all of us of stress and pressure, and you come along and you issue this appalling diatribe to us. You tear us to shreds. Did you learn nothing from your half-brother, Jesus, who you remember, was described as the one who would not break the bruised reed or snuff out the dimly burning wick. And it sounds, doesn't it, sounds to me as though James is preaching to his congregation as though they were the enemy. Now, you may be like me. We've heard preachers who preach to their congregation as though they were the enemy and perhaps they are. But everything we know about James would at least give us the sense this man cannot possibly be doing that. He is not treating these friends to whom he's writing as though they were the enemy. 
And what I think we need to understand in what James is saying here, what he's writing here, is that while he is writing to the saints, he's almost certainly not speaking about the saints. And we'll try and see how that actually emerges in this letter and actually also in this particular passage. But the most obvious reason for thinking that is that James has already announced at the beginning of the little letter, which you can read actually in 20 minutes, although this is 11 months to the day since Harry Melia introduced it to us, if you read through the letter, he gives all kinds of telltale signs that he understands he's writing to people who are under pressure. He's writing to people who are suffering from stress. And he's actually writing in order that he may promote their joy. So when we come to this passage, we have to hold that thought in the background. Somehow or another, this passage fits into James' concern that believers who are suffering, who are under pressure, going through times of stress, may find true and living joy. So how does he do this? Well, in the first chapter, I encourage you, actually, if you haven't uh, done it, to go back and hear Harry Melia's splendid introductory sermon to this book. But you remember, as James introduced himself to his Christian friends, he told them what he wanted to do for them. He wanted them to experience Christian joy in the midst of tribulations, tests, and trials. And by and large, through the book, these tests are divided into two categories. Uh, We sing about them in the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Have you trials and temptations? The tests that come to these believers come either in the difficulties of their providential circumstances and what other people do to them, or in the pressures that they experience in their souls to fall to temptation. The first comes in this particular instance from people who will crush them. The second, this moral test, comes in such a way that Satan seeks to compromise our Christian faith. And between chapter 1, verse 5, and here, chapter 5, verse 7, virtually everything he says And he writes not in a straight line like Paul, but picks up themes, puts them down, returns to them again. But everything he says is either about the test that comes through the providences of life or the tests that come to cause us to compromise our faith in Christ. So clue number one to the fact that he is writing to the saints but not writing about the saints is that he has told them that he wants to promote joy. There's a second clue here. Uh, you're, You're almost bound to have noticed that preachers have speech patterns. Some of their speech patterns are irritating and somebody needs to tell them their speech patterns are irritating, but we've all got speech patterns. If you just think about it, when you listen to people, they tend to articulate things 
in similar ways. They use the same words or the same expressions. And James does that. Um, If you read through James, not in 11 months, but in about the 20 minutes it will take you, you'll, you'll notice like the nose on your face, there's something that sticks out. The leading characteristic of his speech pattern, you may have met Christians like this, is that whenever he wants to draw us in, he calls us brother. And he does it again and again and again. I've actually met Christians who punctuate everything they say with, well, it was like this brother, it was like that brother, it was like this brother. Well, James is not neurotic like that. But already seven times in this letter, and he'll do it another three times before it's finished, he's drawn in these saints by calling them brothers or my brothers or even my beloved brothers. But there's no reference to brothers in this passage. And the reason there's no reference to brothers in this passage is because James is not addressing brothers. James does not think of these people as brothers. He's already referred to these rich people in chapter 1 and verse 11. The grass withers, the flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And he'd spoken in similar terms later on in chapter 2 when he wrote this. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, James does not think that every rich man is an ungodly man. Abraham was very rich and very godly. Joseph of Arimathea, who had lovingly buried the dead body of his half-brother, is described as a rich man. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, instructions to give to those who are rich materially rich in the congregation. And you and I may have known rich men who have stewarded their riches. Think of a couple of elders in a church I served in the United States who every single year I knew that the tax authorities would audit them because they did not believe how much these men gave away to Christian causes. So James is not down on rich men, but he is pointing an accusing finger at these particular rich men because of their attitude to, their response to Christian believers. They were not stewards of their riches. They were intimidators of the saints. And we know from the literature of antiquity that there were plenty of rich men like this, both in the Roman world and in the Jewish world. And James is speaking about them. And that should raise a question in our minds. Certainly it raises a question in my mind. Why is James doing this? And how is it that James is encouraging the saints through this? Is it not strange to address your words to people who are not there 
Well, not if you're James. And not if you're an Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophecies are full of words that are directed to people who are not there. To people who have opposed the truth of God and the people of God. They're not present. They're not listening. They're not reading. So what is it that James is doing here? Well, I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it, what he's doing? He's speaking here to pastor his congregations, dispersed as they were from Jerusalem, where he was probably still living. He's seeking to pastor them by issuing a prophetic word of judgment on these ungodly rich. Old Testament actually has a word for this kind of thing, reeve. It's translated a cause, a lawsuit. And if you think in those terms that this is what James is doing, he's issuing a lawsuit, then I think you'll see how it is eventually that this fits into the encouragement of the saints. What's he doing? He's asking us to imagine him as a trial lawyer in the courtroom, but now at the last assize before the judgment seat of Christ. And he's saying to these ungodly rich people, come now. And if they ask, where now will you take us? He says, I take you to the judgment seat of God so that we can see your life in its true colors. Uh, I don't know if uh, Charles Dickens read the letter of James, but this is exactly what he does in Christmas Carol, isn't it? He takes Ebenezer Scrooge, the rich and ungodly man, forward to his future. And that's exactly what James is doing here. He is a lawyer, a prosecuting lawyer in the courtroom of God. And uh, as you've seen on, at least on television of American court scenes, he's bringing forward his exhibits. And he's got four of them. Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C, and Exhibit D. Exhibit A is... Uh, in verse 3, isn't it? He says, your gold and silver, they've now become corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And in verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. He's bringing them forwards to the clear noonday sun of the judgment of God and he's saying, Look at what you trusted in now. Look at what made you Mr. Big, Mr. Somebody. Look at what you made your fortress and your strong tower. Look at it. Your precious things have corrupted. The clothes that you bought so expensively from the great department stores, as it were, look at them now. Look at them now. I remember as a student uh, going round old churches in Caithness and Sutherland with a friend, and we were bold enough not only to go into the church building, but since nobody seemed to be in some of them for years, we would even go into the minister's vestry. I remember going into the vestry with my friend. I, I, uh, I actually opened a cupboard door 
and I turned to him and I did something totally instinctive. I said, look, the last minister left his Geneva gown here. And there it was hanging on the wall. And instinctively I touched it and it disintegrated in my hands. For all the world, it looked fresh and new. But the truth was the moths had eaten it. And so he's bringing in the, the first article of evidence. And he's saying, this is the truth about you. Your riches are corrupted. And then he brings in his second part of evidence, exhibit B. And he says in verse 4 here, he says, listen now to what you did not hear then. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Now, of course, if the plumber's bill has been lying in your house for two months and you've money in the bank to pay it, this does refer to you. But he's speaking about landowners, people who should have been paying their, their harvesters every single day and they've been keeping back by fraud their wages. And now the inner cries of those harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And he says, there you are standing before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things that are due you for what you have done in the body. And you can hardly hear yourself think because of the cries of these witnesses against you for the way in which you intimidated them. And you don't know that the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of armies, the God of battles, is on their side and not on your side. And then there's exhibit C in verse 5. Consider now this, he says. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgent. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. See what he's saying? He's saying you grew fat but you didn't realize that you were simply growing fat for the slaughterhouse. I was brought up in the east end of Glasgow and there used to be a slaughterhouse relatively near where I lived and so often you would see those uh, farm trucks arriving, going down Duke Street in the east end of Glasgow and these cows looking out the window and the sheep mang away and they had been fattened up. They'd, they'd had the life of Larry in the fields. The, they had been supplied with so much. And they had no idea as they were driven down Duke Street and into High Street that they'd been fattened up for slaughter. And that's the, that's the, that's the powerful word that James is issuing to them. It's the reason he begins this chapter the way it begins. Don't you see what you are doing? I'm not speaking about what you are doing to others. Don't you see what you are doing to yourself? And on that day, he's saying, you will realize something about yourself to which you gave no attention in the past. 
when God says, this night your soul will be required of you, whose will these things then be? And then he brings forward exhibit D in verse 6. He says, look now at the charges against you that you never thought you'd hear. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Of course, there's more than one way to condemn and murder. James' half-brother had taught that we can murder with a look and with a word as well as with a knife and with a gun. But in this instance, he probably means the, the actual physical thing. You've destroyed the lives of others who have been righteous. And James, this James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, this James had seen that probably with his own eyes at least twice. They had done that to his half-brother Jesus. It was rich men, powerful men, intimidators who did this. And they had done that to the brother of John, his dear friend. And James had seen this kind of thing with his own eyes. Perhaps this is what is in his mind. I wouldn't go so far as to say that this was his chief focus but there was plenty of it in the Roman world, both before and after birth. There had been enormous terminations of the life of the young, either before birth or immediately after birth. It was one of the things the Christians were famous for, that they would collect newborn babies from the ash heaps the trash cans of the Roman Empire. And certainly when I read this, I can't help thinking about what, what does this mean when, when these rich men are projected forwards to the judgment seat of God and there are all these silent witnesses. Interesting, isn't it? This is, this is one place in the, these pieces of evidence where he says you'll not hear anything, but their very presence will be an accusation against you. God help Scotland. God help the governments. God, God, help, God help a nation that has terminated the population of Aberdeen and Dundee and Stirling and Edinburgh since the Termination Act came into existence. And think of all those silent witnesses standing there before the judgment seat of Christ and observing what these people will receive. No wonder he begins by saying, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The very thing John sees in the book of Revelation, the strong men, the rich men, the generals running to the mountains and saying, fall upon us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. 
Some of you have read a wonderful little essay by A.W. Tozer entitled Wanted, A Baptism of Clear Seeing. And this is what he's doing. He's, he's doing, as I say, what Dickens does to Ebenezer Scrooge. He's saying, this is who you really are, rich man. This is what you are really doing. Let this cold shower of judgment wash over you. And when you wipe it from your face, see clearly the truth about yourself. Because one day you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And all will be clear. So that's what James says to the rich who are absent. But my other question was, how then is he encouraging the saints who are present in the assembly as this letter is read out to them? We remember David's uh, music director, Asaph, slightly melancholy individual. I think music directors always should have a touch of melancholy about them. Um, Remember how he wrestles with this very problem in Psalm 73. The people who are ungodly seem untouched. They seem untouchable. They intimidate believers. They stand in their faces. They grow rich. And as he wrestles with this, as it discourages him, then eventually, I think in about verse 17 in Psalm 73, he says this, Then I entered the temple of God. And I saw their end. And that's what transformed everything for him. When he saw the truth from the end backwards to the beginning, he realized that he had blessings and treasures that he could never think of exchanging for the impoverished riches that these intimidators and marauders had had. And that's exactly what James is doing here. As he brings forward this evidence, he doesn't need to tell these Christians that there is another kind of evidence that is relevant to their life. These people had amassed ephemeral riches. But you see, in the light of that, the believer's heart has turned to the fact that he or she has been given priceless possessions. In Jesus Christ. He says this earlier on in the passage. And if we were reading it in 20 minutes. I think we would pick that up easily enough. He would say to us. It's those who are poor in the world. Who are rich in faith. And heirs of the kingdom. Which he has promised to those who love him. Remember John Newton's words. Solid joys. And lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. So over against these ephemeral riches, believers had received in Christ a treasure beyond price, the Lord of glory. And over against those, the cries of whose maligned laborers reached the Lord of hosts. I think this is... Is this the only place in the New Testament where that expression is used? It's, it's a Hebrew expression. It means the Lord of armies. The God who does battle for his people. The Lord who protects his people. 
It's just like this scene in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha's servant boy goes out, you remember, and uh, as he looks into the hills, the, the hills are full of the enemy army and they're surrounding Dothan where he is and he runs back and he cries out to Elisha, we're, we're done for here. There are too many of them and they're too strong. And Elisha takes him out and prays, Lord, open the young man's eyes. And we're told the young man's eyes were opened and he saw surrounding the enemy army, the armies of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts encamps around those who fear him. And it's believers who have the true security. And James is saying these rich people will taste the wages of their sin in judgment and death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But these believers have already received and experienced the gift of God, which is eternal life. And yes, these men and perhaps women had condemned and murdered the righteous one who remained silent. And if you're a Christian, a saint, you can't possibly read that without reflecting on what is said of the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 53, that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. And whereas either directly to him or to his servants or to his people spread throughout the Roman Empire, they had destroyed, condemned, murdered righteous ones who remained silent. These saints, these believers had found in the one who remained silent that he was wounded for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities. Chastisement to bring them peace was upon him and with his stripes they would be healed. And so as they projected themselves forward, you you can't read this, I don't think, without feeling... Lord, you're projecting me forward to the judgment seat. What am I going to say? And the gospel tells us that because he was silent, we're all able as believers to open our mouths. And if the charge sheet is, what have you to say for yourself? We say, Jesus. Jesus was silent under judgment in order that I might be able to speak his name. And you see, that's why I said I'd like to steal, just for a moment, only for a moment, I'll put it back, I'd like to steal from next week's passage, because I think this is a poor break in our Bibles. There are only three occasions in which James uses the word therefore. Now, we're all familiar with the Apostle Paul who's constantly using the word therefore because Paul tends to argue in a straight line. James develops themes, puts them down, picks them up, puts them down. He he doesn't, as it were, work in a straight line, but thematically. But here he's working in a straight line. Because these things are true, he's saying, because, believer, you have been listening to this, therefore, brothers... See the contrast? Therefore, brothers, be patient. Long-suffering is the word. Long, slow to get angry. 
looking forward, having the long-term view. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because you have treasure in Christ now. You have protection in God now. You have eternal life now. You found salvation in Christ, who was silent that you might plead his name. With him, you have everything. Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name, fading as the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion children know. And so this may be a call to us to weep and to lament and to repent and to seek a saviour, or it may be this great encouragement to know that we have solid joys and lasting treasure because we are James's beloved brothers and sisters, the children of Zion. Well, may that be so, and may our eyes be lifted up to him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that has been ours today, some of us able to gather whatever the limitations have been, and to see each other's faces and to be encouraged by one another's presence. We thank you for this. We pray that more and more of us may delight in it and experience it and be encouraged by it. But most of all today, we pray you would lift up our eyes through your word to that great throne of glory where our Lord Jesus Christ stands at your right hand as a prince and a saviour, our mediator and friend. Help us, we pray, to fix our eyes on that priceless treasure which you have given us in your beloved Son by making us his brothers and sisters. We pray this in his name. Amen.